Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, this has already been a fun day. Uh, for us to be able to celebrate together as a body, uh, the church, on what he's done in our midst. And as we've celebrated, actually, with many churches in this area uh, that have um, grown their physical plants, if you will, on their sites, and the constant theme we keep hearing from our, our fellow brothers and sisters in other churches is there's an expectation that God is going to be doing some pretty amazing things in our region. And so... It's fun to be able to anticipate that together with the greater kingdom of God here in this area. And uh, part of the unexpected journeys of the past year was, you know, we knew we were going to go and start doing live stream when we came into this facility. We just didn't know we would do it as soon as we did. But we also added radio. And so if you, some of you probably are aware of that, that we, we are on WIOV at 8 a.m. every Sunday morning. And so you can hear last week's message uh, the following week. And so I know somebody that uh, told me while we were golfing together, he says, yeah, I started listening to WIOV at eight o'clock and then coming for the nine o'clock service. So I was able to prepare myself by rehearing last week and come into this week. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool pattern. I like that. Uh, but we've discovered and continue to hear from people that never knew about LEFC that are listening on the radio. So be praying that God will use uh, our broadcasting on WIOV. Uh, to reach a, a people that, so many of whom are stuck at home right now, and others who are traveling and wouldn't otherwise have known uh, about Lancaster Evangelical Free Church. And in particular, we believe that that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because we're teaching the Word of God. We're, the Word of God's the authority here. Uh, that's part of the stewardship that we have to commit to as a church, is that we continue to make God the authority, not ourselves, not our culture. We have a biblical worldview. So we began last week teaching through Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so I'm going to ask you to turn there now in your Bibles if you have one there with you or go to your tablet or phone and find Matthew. And we'll be there uh, to start and then we'll also spend some time in Luke chapter 18. So we began the Sermon on the Mount by actually going into chapter 5 into verses 17 to 20. The reason for that is I believe that Matthew 5, verses 17 and 20, helps us understand that which comes after that in the Sermon on the Mount, which talks about the various laws, but a greater meaning to them, those laws. But it also follows directly the Beatitudes, which we will begin today, 
and it helps us understand why it's important to lean in on these Beatitudes uh, for our own sake and lives. So as we looked at, verse 20 was kind of a key verse. Under the statement that as he's going to be talking about the law and that the law is something that you know as dot, 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 but he's going to give you greater meaning, he wanted to make sure that what wasn't understood from what he was saying was that he is not advocating for the law to be undermined or to go away, to fade away. He's not abolishing it. Rather, he is fulfilling it. He's giving it greater meaning. It's bringing it to its fullest end. The law actually points to the things that Jesus is going to embody. And so he brings about the the fullness of the law, and therefore he's going to spend the majority of the Sermon on the Mount explaining the law and how he fulfills it. But in particular, the Beatitudes are important to understand as they are the starting point for a person's heart in finding acknowledgement and true faith. You see in verse 20, as we looked at last week, it says that unless your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he doubles down on it and says, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven if your righteousness, the standard of your faith, is the same as the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And I share that that's like hearing, and if you were a contemporary, then that's like him telling you that your spiritual leaders that you think are living out the law better than anybody else, if your spiritual leaders are the standard, don't expect to get into heaven. That was a little bit of a gut punch because most people that were living at that time would say, I cannot live to the standard of righteousness that those Pharisees and teachers of the law live out. But yet, Jesus says, if you don't go beyond that, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. So, he has their attention for sure. But it was prior to that statement that he shares these beatitudes. And the beatitudes are, you know, the term beatitudes not in scripture, but it's a, it's a title that's been given to them for several centuries in the church. And it basically means these are the attitudes you're to be. You're to live these out. So that's why they're the be attitude. This should be your attitude as a follower of Jesus Christ. So the best way to receive these Beatitudes, which by the way is verses 1 to 12, the best way to receive them is to see them as the profile of a person whose faith is acceptable to God. So he's already said that the faith of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law fall short. But in the verses of the Beatitudes, he describes a faith and a person of faith whose faith is accepted and appreciated by God. So we're going to look at this as a profile. It's also best to understand the Beatitudes as a progression So it begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then it goes to those who are mourning, and then on to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What we need to look at is that this is like a person's journey. So it begins with a person whose heart is poor in spirit that leads then to one who mourns. And then as they mourn, Jesus says, you're going to begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so you'll be filled. So you got to see it as a progression. 
Do not disconnect them from each other. And then ultimately, it's the standard. If the Pharisees and teachers of the law are not the standard, then what is? Jesus is saying, this is the description of a person whose faith is bona fide. It's real. It's authentic. And it's worth following after. So let's read now verses 1 to 12 in the text. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed. Blessed. I think it's kind of important that we give meaning to that term, shouldn't we not? If this is indeed the profile of a person whose faith, God says, is authentic, is the real deal, then we better understand the repeated word, blessed or blessed. It comes from the Greek term, uh, makarios, which means, you know, in the English, blessed, fortunate, or happy. In fact, some of you are reading versions of scripture translations that use the term Happy is the person who is poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So some of your translations might say that. Or maybe it might say fortunate. Fortunate are you who are poor in spirit. Fortunate are you who, are mourn, who mourn. Fortunate are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Most translations find that the word blessed or blessed is the most appropriate term to describe the intent of what this, is, uh, this word is being used at in this text. Because after all, the context around it says that there's something that God does not approve of in the current standards that are being taught to society as to what is righteous and what is not, as to what pleases God and what does not please God. So this is a declaration, a blessedness that comes with those who are indeed authentic. So it's better to look at the term makarios as one that is an objective state, not a subjective feeling is what commentarian says. So in other words, Jesus is giving a statement of fact, not a feeling that we feel. So this isn't about 
how you feel because you're poor in spirit. It's not how you feel because you mourn or it's not how you feel because you happen to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. No, this is an objective state. This is saying that there is something God is saying about you. So as one commentary says, Jesus is not declaring how people are to feel. Rather, he is making an objective statement about what God thinks of them. He goes on to further say, so blessed or blessed is an awareness of the approval of God, a pronouncement of what we actually are. So for the one who is poor in spirit, God says he's real. He is approved. So the better term or translated term that maybe makes it clear for us is approved. Approved is the one who is poor in spirit. Approved is the one who mourns. Approved is the one who is meek. Approved is the one who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're followed with statements of promise. So this is a declaration of God upon us. And then as Jesus is reading this, it's then bringing awareness of this approval of God about us. So if God disapproves of the standard of righteousness that the Pharisees and teachers of the law were teaching, then he's saying, but this I do approve. The person who is poor in spirit, who mourns, who is meek, who is merciful, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who's pure in heart, who is willing to suffer for my name, who is a peacemaker. These are all things that shows a person that is in the favor of God. He approves of them. And so blessed are those type of people. It is a bestowment upon us. It's not arbitrary. The commentarians spend much time enjoying unpacking this term. And that's why it's important to get it right because it is the term to understand the Beatitudes. That attitude we should have. And therefore, we receive it as a bestowment from God. When looking at this passage, in particular, uh, the passages of the Beatitudes. I was given a book about three months ago from Dan Elliott, our founding pastor. He was here to celebrate our 40th year as a church and to dedicate this building. As a gift to me, we gave him a couple gifts from us as a church, but as a gift to me, he gave me this book called The Beatitudes by Daryl W. Johnson. And at the beginning of this um, this Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. And when he reads the first Beatitude, Johnson asks himself three questions when he reads this, blessed are the poor in spirit or approved are the poor in spirit. He says, well, what does that mean is his first logical question. And secondly, why is poverty of spirit a sign that the gospel is grabbing hold of someone because that's what Jesus is advocating for? And then is there ever a time one can be rich in spirit? Fair questions, right? So let's look at what does it mean to be poor in spirit? So the first question, what does it mean to be poor? Now, this term poor in the Greek is the word patochoi. There are two Greek words that are used in scripture to refer to the word poor. The first, the word that's not in this text would more, refer more to a word that is you know, I'm poor. I don't have a lot of means. I'm on lesser end, but I'm still surviving. It's that kind of poor. 
But patochoi, that Greek term is a poorness that says you're so desperate, you beg. You will not survive unless you receive help. That's the type of poorness this is speaking to. So approved or blessed is the one who is so poor in spirit that they beg for help. They beg for help. And then God says, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit then is to understand that when we realize we are so impoverished in our nature, our character, that we beg for help. This person realizes the answer is not from within. It's from without. We can't on our own please God. We can't on our own earn his favor, earn the right to be in the kingdom of heaven for eternity with him. No, we'll find ourselves lacking always. But when we realize that, the person who God says, this one I approve of, is the person that comes to that point of reality and realizes, yeah, I can't on my own impress God. I can't achieve a righteousness on my own that would allow me entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It is not on me. It is not on my works. And when you realize that, and that you are completely at the mercy of God's help, you beg for help. You beg for help from God himself. I can't do this. If the Pharisees who would love to show off that they were living out the law and even adding things to the law to impress people, if they're not worthy enough, how can we be? There's no way. And God knows it. Jesus knows it. And that's why he is offended by the thought that it was being taught to these people you have the ability to do enough to make yourself worthy of the kingdom of heaven for a lifetime. No way. It can't happen. And Jesus says, you've got to go beyond that if you ever have a hope to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is why he begins with saying, blessed are the poor in spirit because they know they don't have it within them. They know they are bankrupt spiritually. They know they are bankrupt in their soul and they beg God for help. The second question that Johnson asked is, why is the poverty of spirit a sign that the gospel is grabbing hold? You see, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed come to reconcile sinners to the holy God. And all that is accomplished by his work on the cross. So how is it that when somebody becomes poor in spirit, it's a sign that the gospel is doing its work in that person's life? You see... To become a follower of Jesus, to experience the salvation he offers, it says we must declare him as Lord and Savior. Lord means that he is in control of our life. He sets the direction for our life and we submit to it. And Savior, acknowledging that we can't save ourselves, he is the one that saves us. So the gospel impact becomes obvious when we're poor in spirit because we have then acknowledged that we are so bankrupt on our own that if it wasn't for the help of God, we would fall short and we would not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So yes, this is a sign the gospel is taking root in a person's life. When they realize, I'm not enough. I need help. And they cry out to God for that help. Think of you, many of you, what you would have become if Jesus had not rescued you. Many of you accepted Christ like I did at a very young age. I don't have a lot of story prior to meeting Jesus. But I've met a lot of people who met Jesus later. And they tell the stories that had happened of their life prior to meeting Jesus and what has happened since. And it's a reminder, what would have been in my life, what could have been in my life if I had not met Jesus. For many of you, you know. You know what life was like without Jesus. You have the memories and you're ashamed of them. So it was easy and it's easier to understand what it means to be poor in spirit, patochoi, to beg because you're in such desperate need for help. One of my brothers shared a story of something that happened recently at his place of work where a person, after hearing the gospel, says, you have no idea what I have done. There is nothing that could save me from the current state of who I am. Nothing. Well, I would say that person is at the beginning stages of realizing what they need because they're right. There is nothing good that is worthy of God's favor. And this is where you pray. You pray for that person to realize God already knew that. But that's why he did, out of love, send his son, Jesus Christ, to save you. Patochoi, to realize just how sinful, depraved, and in need of help we are. But then the last question that Daryl asked, is it possible to be rich in spirit? Is it possible to ever be rich in spirit? His answer to this question is, after studying this more fully about blessed is the, the poor in spirit or approved is the one who is poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He answers the question, is there ever a time we're rich? He says, yes. There is a time when we are rich in spirit, and it's every time we are poor in spirit. You see, at the very moments when we realize just who we are not, we are not on the same level of God. We are not capable of achieving that which God would expect, pure holiness. We are in need of his constant work in us. That when we come to that place and we realize, God, help me. We're at the place where that poorness in spirit has led us to a rich place where the richness of heaven enters in. Hmm. How beautiful is that? So the question then becomes, how does this look? How does it look for somebody that has been in journey with God for a long time? I mean, after all, I gave my life to Christ at age seven. Many of you are in the same story. Others of you, it came later. But if you've been a follower of Christ for 20, 30 years, 10 years, 5 years, wherever length of time, you'll start to notice a challenge to your soul. When you began at a poor in spirit place where you realized, I need a Savior, to where you start experiencing the benefits of your life being changed and transformed daily, you begin to think, I've arrived. 
and you forget that this is a work of God. This is where I would like to bring you to Luke chapter 18. So if you could turn your Bibles to the right from Matthew and go to Luke chapter 18. And I want to share a moment that happens between Jesus and the Pharisees again. But he tells a parable, a short story to to explain his point. But my guess is this parable is an actual event. So starting in verse 9. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So the audience of the parable needs to be understood. He's not talking to his disciples. He's not talking to his followers. He's not talking to the greater people there. He's now looking in the eye the pastors and teachers of that day. He looks them in the eye, realizing that in their hearts, they were confident of their own righteousness. And, they, and that confidence showed up in the way they looked down upon everyone else. Jesus has a word for them. And I think we should hear it as a warning to ourselves. Let's begin in verse 10, the parable. Two men... Jesus speaking, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's in the room with me praying. After all, I fast twice a week, God, and I give a tenth Of all I get, Lord. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus concludes with saying, I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified, approved, blessed before God. For all those who exalted themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. To the ones who thought they were righteous and looked down upon others, God, thank you. Thank you for making me me. It's a good thing to be Tony Hunt. It's a really good thing to be Tony Hunt. God, thank you that I'm not like my executive pastor, Joel Lingenfelter. (laughs) I am glad that I am not made like him. After all, God, he was raised, I was raised in the heartland of America where We are people of true, deep faith. He was raised in California. (laughs) He wears cowboy boots and plaid shirts to worship. I wear nice shirts and dress shoes to worship. He has a too strong, too strong of an affinity for good coffee. And God, you might want to talk to him. He might be addicted to it. 
Don't get me started about his love for the Buffalo Bills. And Lord, why did you let them win last night? But God, thank you. Thank you for not making me like Joel Lingenfelter. I don't think that's the kind of prayers that God is confronting in this moment. In fact, I would say that's not usually where the issues of sin lie. Yes, it's true. In interpersonal communications and things, we do compare ourselves to other people. There's a lot different about Joel and I. But that's not where the rooted issues of sin lie. The sin creeps in when you begin to think, God, I am so glad that I'm not like that person who is addicted to dot, 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 pornography, alcohol, lust. Or God, thank you that you had given me and shown that you approve of me by the the amount of money I have or the cars I drive. God, thank you that I am better off than some of the people I'm worshiping beside right now. God, thank you for, I know that you listen to me more because, well, after all, I've been serving in ministry for a long time. So I'm sure my prayers are heard more than this person who just was baptized last week talking about all their sinful past. I think one of the more profound moments in Scripture might be the moment when Jesus forgives the thief on the cross. Think about it. In the text, it says that both thieves were hurling insults upon Jesus. Somewhere along the line, because they were on those crosses for several hours, somewhere along the line, the revelation as to who Jesus was on that cross was revealed to the one thief. And he had a change of heart. This thief was going to die within minutes or hours. He's already made a mockery of the God he now realizes he's hanging next to. And he says to Jesus, with no right or favor to draw upon, no ability to prove worthy of that request he was about to ask, and he says to Jesus, would you remember me in your kingdom? And then Jesus says something very profound, knowing that this man was going to have no opportunity whatsoever to earn anything. And he says to him, you become poor in spirit. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That poor in spirit moment, that blessed moment where he realizes I'm a sinner. There's no hope for me. I need your help. And he looks to Jesus on the cross next to him and says, would you remember me? That change of heart was the starting point of life eternal for that thief. The Pharisees were confident in their own righteousness. They thought they were impressing God by all the things they were doing. I mean, look at what he did. He's talking to God, and he says, God, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I have. (laughs) 
Yet the tax collector who had been robbing people, who had been stealing people, who had cheated on his very own people for the sake of his own personal gain, realizes he has nothing to offer God other than a broken soul and says, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. God says, through his son Jesus, that's the person I approve of. That's the one that is justified before me. That is the one I bless. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says, unless your, Pharise- the, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But what he promises to the one who is poor in spirit, the one who realizes I'm an incredible sinner, I am in desperate need, God, I beg you, save me, that person will be exalted and approved. This is the starting point of a person who truly has an authentic faith when they realize God is and I am not. So what are the takeaways from this text? It begins with the understanding and acknowledgement that you have a corrupt nature and you embrace the posture of begging God for mercy. If you want to experience the beauty of life now, but also the eternal kingdom of heaven, it begins with you realizing the keys aren't in your hands. The work is not in your hands. The template is not in your hands. It's in God's. Secondly, after begging God for mercy, we begin to realize this isn't about seeking approval from our peers, mankind. No, this is about seeking God's approval. We want to be called blessed by him. You'll see several points where the Pharisees and teachers of the law of their day are regularly comparing themselves. But the man of God, the woman of God is regularly coming before God and saying, God, forgive me. Have mercy upon me. But you'll also hear that man of God, that woman of God saying what comes next. And the takeaways is that when you realize how depraved you are, how in need of God you are, how bankrupt you are, how much of a poor state you are, that you beg God for it. And then when he does redeem you, he changes you and he transforms you. Then you realize from how far you've come and to where you are going, how grateful we are for his mercy and for his help. You see, as I was going through this text, it became abundantly clear that gratefulness is the, is the true fruit of experiencing the mercy of God. I took great joy this past week preparing for this message. You know, I, I poked at 
Joel Lingenfelter, the executive pastor, but let me tell you, he is my right hand here at the church. And we spent a good part of our day on Thursday trying to grasp the meaning of the word blessed. Because it's so important to our understanding of our relationship with God. And let me tell you, our time together, there was laughter, there was smiling, there was that aha, there was energy. As we talked about the Greek meanings and the implications. And he walked out. And what I felt was gratefulness. Gratefulness for the moment of opening the word with a brother. Grateful for a brother that was willing to do that, but grateful for a Savior that took this sinner and changed him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we can't do it on our own. We need your help. We are sinners, each of us. Some of us have convinced ourselves otherwise, and we compare. Bring us back to that place where we're poor in spirit and we recognize our need for your help, so much so that we beg for it. And then, Jesus, I am so thankful that you promised that, we, that just like that tax collector couldn't lift his head, you say you are the lifter of our heads when you declare us as children of yours. So, God, as some of us then approach right now with our heads lowered because we're embarrassed for our sins and we ask for your help, I would then ask that you would then lift our heads and show your love, your mercy, and your grace. And that you're doing the work that we cannot do on our own. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand, please?
So during my college years, there was a season of time that I would say was one of the more intense times in my life of enjoying the favor of the Lord and experiencing his presence on a daily basis. It was incredible. I was involved with a group of people that was studying the word of God together. We were praying together. We were praying for revival among our classmates. We were seeing people come to know Christ. We were having a, an opportunity and pleasure to be a part of seeing a lot of those people make that decision. It was a sweet time. But what I didn't see was that just something that was subtly starting to go in there was, look at how righteous I am now. And I think that God was trying to, and trying would be the wrong word. God was making sure and protecting me from me. When on a Friday, as the professor was handing out assignments of a paper we were going to have to write, he handed each of us a word that was going to be a fruit of the Spirit or a fruit of God in some way. And the word he handed me was the word humility. And then on Sunday... That was a Friday, and on Sunday, as I'm already immersed in this idea, I've got to write a 10-page paper on the word humility. The pastor then speaks out of Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, and it says this, God speaking, I will look to this one, at one who is humble in heart, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. God got my attention. I realize that as God continues to do his work in my life, there, is a, there are moments and seasons where sometimes we begin to think it's because of me. And the beauty is, is that God, because he loves me, will remind me it's because of him. He wants to keep me in a good place as he wants to keep all of us. So the person who is in the favor of the Lord, who is approved by God, is the one who acknowledges God is God and I am not. I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and God provides that in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you would like to talk to somebody about that or pray with someone, we'll have people in the encounter room, which is my left, your right. If you're online or listening by radio, please email us at office at lefc.net, and we will get to you uh, very quickly as we want to engage people over the gospel's work in a person's life. So my charge to you is enjoy the favor of the Lord, anticipate the kingdom of heaven, but to realize it all begins with realizing it's the work of God. Humility is the key of knowing we're in the right place with him. So as saved ones or as ones seeking, seek the Lord first and his kingdom and righteousness will be added. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a rest, rest of the day as an excellent one.